It seems that we will do just about anything to make ourselves look good. I don't mean just physically. We do that. But when it comes to moral things, spiritual things, we want to look good. And sometimes we'll even cover up what is there, give it a makeover, so to speak, rename certain activities, certain sins, because we don't like to call them sins or evil, so we'll give them a whole new name. A friend of mine gave me a book I've found fascinating. It's called The Official Politically Correct Handbook and Dictionary. And uh, several terms are renamed. Shoplifter is called in the book non-traditional shopper. A serial killer is given the name a person with difficult to meet needs. Evil is now called morally different. Addiction is given the term pharmacological preference. Drunk, chemically inconvenienced. And what got me is the definition of riot. Instead of just calling it a simple word, riot is called spontaneous display of community dissatisfaction with prevailing socioeconomic conditions. <sighs> Had to get a good breath at the end of that one. We have been looking at the life of David the last few weeks. David has sinned with Bathsheba, committed adultery with her killed Uriah the Hittite. Of course, if David were around today, we would just say that he is a king with difficult-to-meet needs who was morally different. But the fact is, he did commit adultery. He did murder Uriah. But first, he brought Uriah back from the field, tried to get him to go lay with his wife, have intimate relations with her. That didn't work, so he got him drunk or we should say chemically inconvenienced one night in hoping that he would go back home and sleep with his wife, which he didn't do. And so David engineered his murder. So David is guilty of adultery, guilty of deception, guilty of murder. And now comes the showdown, you might say, in chapter 12. God is going to get this king's attention. Let me read a little story to you, kind of as a, an introduction to all this that we read in our chapter this morning. It's a, from Paul Harvey's book. Paul Harvey, the radio commentator, has a little section on his radio show called For What It's Worth. And uh, here's the story. Our For What It's Worth department visits Raleigh, North Carolina, where a state cop stopped an obviously drunk driver. While he was ticketing the man, there was a multi-car accident on the other side of the divided highway. The highway patrolman told the drunk to wait. The patrolman went across the highway to sort out the accident. After a while, the drunk figured he had waited long enough. And he drove on home and told his wife if anybody asked, she should say he had been in bed with the flu all that day. Within the hour, two state patrolmen appeared at the home of the drunk driver and asked to see him. He came out from the bedroom wrapped in a robe, coughing and wheezing. The patrolman asked if he had been driving that evening, and he said that he'd been sick in bed all that day. They apologized for bothering him, but then asked if they could take a look at his car. 
the wrapped-up drunk escorted them to the garage, and inside was a highway patrol car, the blue light still flashing. guy took the wrong car home. That's how drunk he was. And boy, is he busted. Blue lights flashing away. In chapter 12, the blue lights are flashing in David's garage. He's got a pregnant wife that was once not his wife, and she's growing larger by the month. It is the evidence, the ever-present reminder of that spring evening in Jerusalem. David broke two of God's commandments of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery, that's the seventh. Thou shalt not murder, that's the sixth. And now comes the showdown. God will send a prophet to confront the king. I've given four words to outline this drama. They're in your bulletin. Commission, confrontation, confession, and consequence. Those four words sum up what goes on in this chapter. And first of all, we want to look at the commission, that is, where God will raise up a prophet of his to come and confront this king that has let this matter rest for some time. I draw your attention back to chapter 11 for just a moment, the last verse. And when her mourning was over, her husband is dead, Bathsheba mourns, it's over now. David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, I want you just to think about how long that was. How long does it take to mourn for the death of a husband before you marry another one, wait nine months to have a child, and now you have a child? It must have been about at least a year since the episode unfolded in chapter 11 and we get to chapter 12, God has been patient for a long, long time. Nothing happens at all. There is no remorse in David for a year. There's no psalms that he writes. No change in his life. He just sort of goes on about his royal business. I'm the king. I did a, a no-no and now we just move on. And so God is very, very patient with him. But while all this is going on, inside of David, he is miserable. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I've read Psalm 32. Psalm 32 was written after David confessed this particular sin. Listen to one verse of it. Psalm 32, verse 3. When I refused to confess my sin, I was weak and miserable. I groaned all day long. That's what's going on inside the king, though outwardly he's just going about his business. Why is he feeling this way? Because though he has sinned, he still has a heart for God. He's still a man after God's own heart. You say, oh, but how could you say that? He's covered up that heart. Yes, he has, but he still has that conscience. He hasn't dealt with it the proper way, but at the same time, he's bothered by it. And if you ever have a heart for God... Sin really bothers you. It grows inside as a misery. It's sort of like driving along and having the light on your uh, dashboard go off, maybe one or two warning lights. When the warning light goes off, you can do a couple of things. What you should do is take the car in and get it fixed. It means something's wrong. 
Or you could bring along a little hammer. And when the light goes off on the dashboard, you pull out the hammer and smash it. Take care of the light, but it won't take care of the problem. The first option is to treat the problem. The second option is to treat the symptom of the problem. But eventually, the car will stall. You'll have major problems as it goes on. David has smashed the warning lights, the guilt lights in his conscience. Didn't deal with guilt properly. Because of that, we read now chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord, and I want you to know that then refers to the previous verse, verse 27 of chapter 11. God waited a long time. God was displeased. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him. In Genesis 6, God said, My spirit will not always strive with man forever. God's been very patient for about a year. Just give the guy some space. Let's see what happens. Let's see if he comes and fesses up. Doesn't do it. And so because David doesn't come to God, God will come to David. How? Through a friendly neighborhood prophet named Nathan, who will get in his face and confront him with his sin. So God is patient, doesn't send Nathan immediately, but God is persistent in that he does send him eventually. Here's my point. We all have a will. We all make choices. And with the will that God has given us, we can even choose to disobey Him as a believer. If as a believer we say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go my own way. Going down that path may at first seem smooth. Like, wow, we've gotten away with it. All right. You may not immediately be stopped. God didn't rearrange the stars for David to spell a message to him when he walked outside. I know. He didn't hang two trillion watt speakers from the moon and, David, this is God. You're in trouble, dude. Didn't do that. Just waited it out. But because the voice of conscience didn't bring David to God, God steps it up to the next level, confrontation. And I think God will do that to us. He has creative ways to get our attention if we don't listen to Him. One Christian called the Holy Spirit the hound of heaven. And the hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit, was working inside of David. I felt miserable all day long. David, why didn't you do something about it? But he didn't. The warning light went off. He just took out the hammer, smashed it. Why is it necessary for David to be confronted now? Because until we are ready to be honest about our sin, we'll never experience God's forgiveness. It's only as we walk in the light as He is in the light that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. God knows that we're restless apart from Him, apart from obedience to Him. And so we now come to the confrontation. Nathan came to David and said, verse 1, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, a female lamb, which he bought and nourished, grew up together with him, with his children. It ate of his own food, drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom. 
He was like a daughter to him. Tender story. Guy has a lamb that's like a pet lamb. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to David, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Nathan's got to be one of the bravest guys in all of Scripture. He's going to go say this before the king who at any moment could lift his scepter up and say, death to you. He could have him eliminated. Nathan comes. He's both very gracious and very bold. Somebody once said that courage is just fear that has said its prayers. I bet there was a big lump in Nathan's throat as he walked through the doors of the palace and said, oh, here goes. But he did it because he loved God and would be more loyal to God than even to the king. And so he tells him a parable, a story. Without trying to read too much into it, it's pretty simple. The rich man is David. The poor man is Uriah. The female lamb, the ewe lamb, is Bathsheba. Guy had a lot of lambs to choose from. David had other women, you remember, in his life. But he went and stole another man's wife, committed adultery. Question, why is Nathan so indirect with David? I mean, why not just walk through the doors of the palace, come up to the throne and say, I know what you've done, David, and you're in big trouble. Why a a third person story? For this reason, our sin often looks much worse on others than it does on us. We can see it better when it's on somebody else. We're so blind often to our own sin. Even though David was miserable and signed, I don't think he knew how bad it was what he had done. And so Nathan effectively makes David look in the mirror by having him look at another person. And as he's looking in the mirror, he goes, that that, that guy's bad. And Nathan goes, yo, David, you're the guy. I once heard about a church that was a dying church Everybody in this dying fellowship who was dwindling complained. And a new pastor took it over. A young guy thought he could resurrect it, and he couldn't. They just grumbled against him and grumbled against the old pastor, grumbled against all the programs. And so try as he may, it wouldn't work. So finally, one Sunday, he just said to the church, you know what, this church is dead, and it deserves a proper burial. So this afternoon at 5.30, please come to the funeral of this church. And they thought, what do you mean funeral of this church? That's odd. But at 5.30 they came, and so did a few curious town folks. Had a pretty good service that afternoon, actually. There was a casket in the front of the church, and the pastor came up dressed in his black burial suit, gave a eulogy about this church that once lived is now dead, and it it died of certain reasons. And we want you to now come up and see the casket and pay your last respects to this church before we bury it. And as you look in the casket, you'll see what the problem is and why this church died. And so everybody curiously lined up and walked to the front to look inside the casket and pay their last respects. And as they did, boy, were they shocked because there was a mirror inside the casket. And everybody looked and saw themselves as they went by. 
That's what Nathan does to David. David, look at this guy. Look how bad it is. David hears the story about a lamb being stolen and being killed. And he goes ballistic. What should we do? Well, I'll tell you what we ought to do. Kill the guy. For stealing a lamb? Kill him? Capital punishment for stealing a lamb? Hello? Exodus 22 said, if a man steals a lamb and kills him, you just restore four times what you took. That's all. You don't kill a guy. You kill a guy for adultery. You kill a guy for murder. But you don't kill a guy for a lamb. But you see, David is indicting himself. He's pronouncing his own death sentence. Because he stole a lot worse than a lamb. He stole a man's wife. Now in verse 7. After he said, you are the man. Nathan says, thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your keeping. Gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Talk about an unexpected sermon. It's pretty direct, isn't it? Pretty bold. I'm sure David is sitting there listening to all this, you know, he had just pointed the finger as a righteously indignant judge at a guy who stole a lamb. And Nathan points the finger right back at him. Because David is now trapped by his own verdict. And I'm sure David's going, how did he know all that? I thought I covered this up pretty well. I was just going, nobody knows. It's been a year. Well, we know how he knew, right? This is a prophet of God, a servant of God. He talks to God. God talks to him. And God snitched on David. Told him the whole thing. And now he comes and confronts him with it. It's been said that secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. There are no skeletons in your closet before God. He knows it all. We hide nothing from him. David finds that out. And Nathan preaches a sermon to him. As Christians, we we listen to a lot of sermons, right? We do that. We come every week and we listen to a message, hopefully to apply it to our lives. Um, We have radio, sermons, sermons in book form. We, We love sermons. We even grade sermons. Some of us have become sermon connoisseurs. I'll give that a 7 on a scale of 1 to 10. Nice beat, easy to dance to. I like that. But you know, we like sermons 
in the third person. Like David did. Hey, let me tell you about this guy. Yeah, bad news, nudge. We like third person sermons. But whenever the Holy Spirit turns the finger on us and starts messing around with our hearts and going, you're the dude or the dudette, whatever the case may be. When he starts messing with us like, I don't like that preacher. Nathan probably thought, I don't like this preacher right now. He's exposing everything that I tried to cover up. I was reading Jeremiah this week in my devotional time, and it's an interesting guy. He was a prophet, very bold in Israel, and he was tolerated. A lot of people thought he was eccentric, and he was, but he was tolerated for the most part until he got very personal with King Zedekiah, the king of Judah. And he said, let me tell you what's going to happen to Zedekiah. He's going to be taken into Babylon. They're going to beat him up real bad. It's a paraphrase. Zedekiah incarcerated Jeremiah in his own courtyard could tolerate preaching until the preacher got too personal and then Zedekiah had roast preacher for lunch that day. Well, notice this confrontation. First of all, Nathan reminds David of the goodness of God. I don't want you to miss that. He says in verse 7, I anointed you king. That's God speaking. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. What the prophet is doing is reminding David of the kindness, the goodness of God. Why? Because it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. That's why. David probably put out of his mind all of God's blessing for so long. And now he's forced to remember how good God is because anybody that has a heart after God, even if it's just a little bit, when they get reminded of the relationship that was there, that'll melt their heart. A lot of preachers like to dangle people over hell and go, God's going to get you. And there's a place for that in some context. But I love this approach. God's been good to you, David. You know it. Thirteen-year-old girl, Elizabeth Brinton, Girl Scout, sold more Girl Scout cookies than anybody. She sold 11,200 boxes of Girl Scout cookies. They interviewed her and asked her how she sold so many cookies. She said, it's easy. you got to look people right in the eye and make them feel guilty. <laughs> it worked. But first, Nathan will have David look right in the eye of God's love and goodness, his blessing for him. Look how good God has been. So he reminds David of God's goodness. Second, he reminds David of the seriousness of his sin. Look at verse 9. Why have you, notice the phrase, despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? And notice in verse 10, it says, Because you have despised me, that's the Lord, to have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. He is reminding David not only of God's goodness, but of the seriousness of his sin. David, this was willful disobedience. This is no lightweight thing. You've despised God's commandment. That's strong language. You've despised God. Again, strong language. What does it mean? It means this. If we claim we love God, but we take the Word of God, the laws of God, and we flagrantly disobey them, we only prove one thing. We don't love God. 
You can say all day long, oh, I love God. Oh, He's so important to me. But if we flagrantly violate what He gives to us, it proves we don't love Him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. David, according to Nathan, has despised the commandment of God. Dwight L. Moody was an evangelist who was very effective in his day, and he would often travel throughout the country and preach messages. And one crusade he did, he went with another evangelist, and it was very, very effective. But one man wrote a letter to this team of evangelists, and uh, it said this, I wish you and Moody had never come to this city. Before you came, I wasn't troubled about my sins. You talk of peace and joy, but you have turned my soul into a living hell. I can't stay away from the meetings, but to come to them only makes me feel worse. You promise salvation, but all I find is torment. I wish you would leave, then I'd have back my old peace. Give me back my old peace. Don't confront me with my own sin. I bet Nathan is feeling that right about now. He was very happy. Hey, Nathan, come on in. How's it going? Well, great. Let me tell you a story. Oh, that's a real bad story. Just kill the guy. Let's move on. Well, you're the man. Oh. So he confronts David with God's goodness and with his own sin. Now, in listening to this, you might think, boy, I'd never do that. I'd never do what Nathan did. I'd never confront somebody that boldly with their own sin. Listen, if you love him, you would. If you're a friend, you would. If you're a servant of God, you would. You know that there is time for loving confrontation? It's not just Old Testament. Jesus said, if you see a brother or you know some brother or sister who has sinned against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he doesn't listen to you, bring somebody and go together and tell him that by the mouth of two witnesses, every word can be established. If they don't listen to you two, tell the church. If they don't listen to the church, put them out of the church. Treat them like a heathen and a tax collector. That's Jesus, incarnate love speaking. Proverbs 27. You're familiar with this. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. A friend, moreover a servant of God, is willing to tactfully, gently, but boldly confront and say, this is wrong. God loves you. God's been good to you. And this is sinful, what you are doing. You say, ah, but people may not like it. Ah, but people may change because of it. When Billy Sunday preached, they used to say that he rubbed people the wrong way. That's what the phrase they used to describe it. And so he addressed this publicly one time. He said, they tell me that I rub the fur the wrong way. I do not let the cat turn around. Nathan walks in and wants to stroke the cat. The cat is turned in the wrong direction. It's like, hmm. The commission of the prophet brought the confrontation with the king. And that brings the confession of the king. Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. First time he said that in all. Well, first time he said that in this episode. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Notice how 
honest it was. Finally, no rationalization, no justification, just I have sinned. I'm busted. I've sinned against God. I believe that when David did this, there was a a wave of relief that came over him. Remember what we read in the beginning in Psalm 32. He said, you know, I I held this in. I didn't confess him. The more I did, the worse I felt. I groaned all day long. I was miserable. I think when he finally said, I have sinned, it's like, finally, the dam breaks. The water flows. He's not holding it back any longer. He can get it off his heart. No rationalization here. He didn't say, well, now wait a minute, Nathan. Bathsheba had part of this too. You know, if she wouldn't have been out there naked on the rooftop that night, things would have been different. He just simply fesses up and says, I'm guilty. I've sinned. I'm the one. Now, Psalm 32, I'm going to read to you. I don't want you to turn to it. I want to just read it to you because I'm going to read it to you in a different translation. It's a newer, more modern translation. This is David's full confession. It's not written here, but it's written in Psalm 32 after the fact. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 both were written. Listen to this. Oh, what joy for those whose rebellion is forgiven, whose sin is out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, I was weak and miserable. I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let the godly confess their rebellion to you while there is time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. Isn't that beautiful? This, then, is the pointed finger and the outstretched hand. Nathan points the finger of judgment, but then says, God has forgiven you, David, because you confessed your sin. You're not going to die. You know that God has a big eraser. He loves to forgive. God delights in mercy. God isn't up in heaven going, I can't wait to get you. You Just wait. This is going to be so good. I've been planning this for a long time. He loves to extend mercy. But he's waiting for the confession. The honest confession. I have sinned. Paul the Apostle said, where sin abounds, grace overflows. But he's waiting for the confession. And confession isn't just admitting that you've done wrong. It's to agree with God. It's calling sin what God calls it. It means you you are on the same page in its definition, its ramifications. That's confession. Some people pray, okay, Lord, if I've sinned, I'm sorry. If I've sinned? That's not confession. If. What do you mean if? If you're not sure, why are you talking to him about it? Just to cover your bases? That's not confession. This was an out-and-out admission and agreeing with God and what he called it. 
Now, it'd be nice to just sort of close right there and say, okay, here it was, a guy sinned, and he confessed his sin, he was forgiven, let's all sing a song and go home. But we can't do that because there's another word that's part of this chapter. It's called consequence. Though David is forgiven, there are consequences that he has to face. Notice verse 13. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, uh uh-oh, because by this deed you have given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. And Nathan departed to his house. God graciously forgave David, but there were temporary consequences that were inevitable. He would face them. Forgiveness is one thing. Consequences are a whole other ballgame. There's a few of them that are mentioned. Back in verse 10, violence would be one of those consequences. The sword shall never depart from your house, even as Uriah was killed by violent means at the hand of David. David's three sons, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah would all be killed in the same way. Verse 11, internal conflict is promised. He says, adversity will come from your own house. Amnon, David's son, raped Tamar, David's daughter. Absalom will kill Amnon for doing it, and then he will usurp David's power. Adversity will come. Bad examples have been set. And then the third one is slander. Verse thirteen. Did you, uh, verse 14, did you notice it? You've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. All the pagans around Israel are going to look at you, David, because you claim to be God's servant, Mr. Spiritual, and you've done this. And they're going to go, I don't want any part of that. They're a bunch of hypocrites. You'll give God's enemies a chance to blaspheme because of your actions. So these are the consequences. They're temporal, but they're real. When God forgives us, all of the eternal consequences are erased. When you come to Christ, they're erased, but there are temporal ones. For instance, if you're sexually promiscuous and you get a sexually transmitted disease, which 35,000 Americans do every 24 hours, because you're forgiven eternally doesn't mean instantly you're going to be healed of that disease. You might be, but there's no guarantee of that. Or if you're drunk and you run out and you step in front of a car, you might suffer broken bones or a limp or, you know, for the rest of your life. There are consequences. And the prophet tells David, you're forgiven. But there are consequences. So a commission, confrontation, a confession, and consequences, all spelled out in this drama. I want to close on a practical note. There may be someone that you need to confront I know you don't like the thought of that. It's a Christian brother or sister. They claim to be believers. Yeah, man, I'm a believer. I come every week. But they are living a lifestyle that is so flagrantly against the will of God. And God's sort of nudging you to to deal with it. What should you do? Three things. Number one, be bold. That doesn't mean be obnoxious. Be bold. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Number two, be gracious. Be gracious. Because God has forgiven you such a big debt, be gracious with the person that you're dealing with. Third, be restorative. That's that's the whole motive, isn't it? To restore them. 
Galatians 6.1, if a brother is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So be bold, be gracious, be restorative. Let's flip the coin. Maybe you're the one that needs to be confronted. Maybe God's been messing around with your heart going, you're the one. I want to deal with you in this area of your life. You could even be an unbeliever this morning. God's been trying to get your attention. He's saying, I want you. I love you. Come to me. What should you do? Number one, admit it. Admit it. David said, I have sinned. Don't shift the blame. Don't say, well, I am the way I am because I was raised this way. Okay? Now that you realize that, don't do that. You don't have to do that. Well, I have a genetic propensity toward doing that. I can't help it. I get violent and I just like to hit people. That's just the way I am. You know when all that started back in the garden? God busted Adam and he said, It's the woman you gave me. You know these women. It's their fault. He passed the buck. And then God confronted Eve and Eve said, It's the snake that's in this garden. Of course, nobody laughed at the snake, so he couldn't point the finger at anybody. But don't shift the blame. Admit it. Second, leave it. Admit it's wrong. Leave it. That's called repentance in the Bible. Turning from it. Turning toward God. Solomon, David's son, would write these words. He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Admit it, leave it. Third, replace it. Replace it. Get rid of that. Replace it with God's forgiveness. Yes, there were consequences that would follow David through the rest of his life, but he was forgiven. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from, ah, I love that word, all unrighteousness. Not most unrighteousness, except for that. All of it. If you what? Confess it. When Frederick the Great, the great king of Prussia, was visiting a Berlin prison, He was visiting all the inmates. Virtually all the inmates came to him and said that they were innocent, that they had a a uh, mistrial, that justice wasn't served, they shouldn't be there. Everyone said they were innocent, except one guy. And Frederick the Great turned to him and said, I suppose you're going to tell me you're innocent too. The man said, oh no. I'm guilty, O king. I deserve punishment. The king heard that, smiled, and summoned the prison guards saying, Come here and release this rascal before he corrupts all these fine, innocent people in here. (laughs) He got out because he was honest and he confessed his sin. Instead of trying to blame anybody else, he turned from it at that point and he was released. And that's how God works. As long as we say, I'm good enough. Next, I'm a sinner. Okay, that's honest. And you come to Him and He'll forgive you. 